You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. 10, 9, ignition sequence start. 6, 5, 4, 3, Humans have been into space hundreds of times. We've circled the Earth, touched the moon, and now as the dulcet tones of my voice reach your ears, Homo sapiens are still in orbit, circling above your head or beneath your feet aboard the International Space Station. But NASA's... Sorry, there's something about circling beneath your feet. I've never watched it go beneath my feet, I have to say, <laughs> but I have watched it go by... I mean, <laughs> okay, but there are humans on board, nevertheless... However, however, NASA's human spaceflight program is on hold indefinitely. The last shuttle has flown, and it may be a while before the agency launches another human skyward. And this raises, if not human skyward, it raises concerns that we'll lose our momentum, that other nations will surpass us in the space and discovery biz, or that the human spaceflight program will just peter out entirely. But not everyone has given up on catapulting humans into the final frontier. We'll discover how far they'll go with training to prepare for space missions, what techno-wizardry is needed to fly there, and what happens when private space rocketeers get involved. I'm Molly Bentley. I'm Seth Chostak. We're getting a space lift on big picture science. And Seth, how far up is space technically? Well, NASA defines it as 100 kilometers up, say 60 miles. If you go higher than that, you get a little pin to put on your shirt. (laughs) (laughs) Well, but in fact, the natives are getting restless. I'm talking about scientists and space buffs who want humans to go where they haven't been for, well, over four decades now, beyond Earth's orbit. Why should we send humans at all is really the question. Why, you ask? Well, there are many reasons. Hey, Neil, you're in the space biz. Can we run by you the top motivations for sending humans into space? Oh, and please state your full name and title. Thanks. Sure. I'm Neil deGrasse Tyson, astrophysicist with the American Museum of Natural History in New York City. Okay, the top reasons to send humans into space. There are so many majestic, noble motivations. There's pride. Imagine the glory. Providence. Why, it's our destiny. Curiosity. What might be on yonder planet? Humanness. We are explorers by nature. Swagger. I want to plant a flag. First, my flag. (laughs) And the subtext underlying it all? To impress my girlfriend. Well, Neil, that's a pretty compelling set of reasons for why humans should go into space, right? No, that's all delusional, actually. (laughs) These are our best ideas. Now what? Uh, By the way, I like those reasons, but they've just simply never worked. (laughs) Wait, wait. How about the direct approach? Please, please, please. Can we go into space, please? Uh, Come on, Neil. When humans go into space, it is inspiring. I mean, there is a sense of discovery, and we are explorers. Yes, the people doing it are explorers. Yes, the people making the inventions are explorers that enable the discoveries. Yes, but not the people who write the checks. So what is it that motivates nations to strap humans onto rockets and send them skyward? Well, historically, three things, says Neil deGrasse Tyson. There's the drive of war... If you think your enemy's access to space makes you vulnerable. And sometimes we're inspired to do big things as an homage to royalty. Oh, my beloved Tsaris and Queen, as a token of my devotion, I fashioned this 50-foot marble likeness of you out of gold. And also marble. But there's been one more great incentive. In the history of famous voyages of discovery, those of Columbus and Magellan, their sponsoring nations wanted to explore so that they could gain... Girlfriends. (laughs) Wealth. 
Oh. Money, you know, moolah. According to Dr. Tyson, as noble as human space exploration is, what we really need is an economic motivation. Yeah, there's a lot of misconception about the role of economics in the frontier space. A lot of people like to cite spinoffs from the space program, of which there are many, and they're quite impressive. But that is not the greatest reason for doing this. So the economic driver is simple. Actually, it's simple, but it takes a few steps to get it. The first step is you fund NASA to the fullest extent necessary for it to realize all of its dreams, including, yeah, sure, moon bases and, and astronauts to Mars and asteroids and this sort of thing. Then the act of committing to this mission galvanizes a nation in a way that we have not been in the last half century because the nation then recognizes that the government is investing in a major engineering, technology, and science project. And you know something? On Mars, we're going to look for life. We need to fly craft in the atmosphere. We need aerospace engineers. We need biologists. We need chemists. We need astrophysicists. We need geologists. The NASA on such a mission stokes the frontier of most of the major sciences and engineering subjects. Upon doing so, you've created a culture that values innovation and invention. And that is the culture that births tomorrow's economies. Neil, let's uh, switch gears here a little bit and talk about that endless debate between robotic and human exploration. <laughs> I mean, we all know the arguments for sending robots. They're cheap. They're effective. They're infinitely safer. And, uh, you know, they're working right now. They're exploring Mars, Saturn, whatever. Why send humans into space at all? If your goal for exploring space is scientific gain, there's, no, there's really not much of a reason to send humans. Humans usually want to come home <laughs> at the end of the... Uh, uh, the mission, you got to feed them, you got to keep them warm. You know, they're, they're really a, High maintenance. a, a nuisance. Yes. <laughs> I'm mean, it's a nuisance. And not only that, if I send a geologist, geologist, by the way, would love to go to Mars with their rock hammers. But you send a geologist and it's time to analyze the inside of a rock, they're going to pull out a, a machine that'll do that. Well, if that's all they're going to do, then you send a robot to deploy the machine. But here's the point. The science budget for NASA is the smaller fraction of the two things that NASA does. It sends people into space, and it does science, and the people are the lion's share of that budget. And when people are advancing a space frontier, the nation pays attention to that. A big argument has been, no one is paying attention to it. We don't, can't recite the names of the astronauts. If they were the first astronauts to go to Mars, we'd all know their name. We'd know where they were born and the name of their sixth grade math teacher. The fact is, the science portfolio is advancing a science frontier, while lately, the human program has not. They've been boldly going where hundreds have gone before in orbit, low Earth orbit around Earth. So, of course, the science is getting the headlines in ways that the humans are not. So, I submit that the enthusiasm for such a program flows through to a much greater measure the, the existence of human beings on that frontier. A, a quick note here, in the 1960s, most people don't know that there were robots on the moon. There were, there were serv camera surveys and the Russians had a rover. Did you hear about this? No, because we were all paying attention to the humans. And I submit to you that if humans and robots are separately advancing a frontier, maybe you'll read about the robots on page 20, but the humans will be on page one. This reminds me of what Frank Capra, the director, once said in the 1940s. He said, people are most interested in people. I mean, it's true. If you go into a classroom of, uh, you know, sixth graders or something and say, how many of you want to go to Mars? They'll all raise their hand. But Every if you add, one of them. And if you say, how many of you want to design a robot that explores Mars, a lot of the hands go down. So we, we do it because we are humans. That's correct. And, and we build statues to explorers. And to this day, I don't know yet of a high school named after a robot, but we've got high schools named after explorers of every shape and size. So I, I don't want to deny that frontier of exploration of the human presence, and especially considering that it it's a galvanizing force. And by the way, going into space has always had strong geopolitical drivers that had nothing to do with exploration or science or anything of the sort. Sometimes it's a projection of strength. Sometimes it's a, a means of collaboration. The International Space Station is the greatest exercise in the collaboration of nations outside of war and the Olympics. But why don't I hear much about it? Uh, about the space, because it's not advancing a frontier. You'd, you'd hear about the space station if discovered some next zero-G medicine. You could argue, why, have, why do we do it at all? It was done in reaction. People forget this. It was done in reaction 
to the Soviet Union who were going to put up a space station that would give continuous observing of Earth below. And I remember the ads. They were in the, in the early 1980s. There were fear-mongering ads saying, you know, you'd see the spaceship coming overhead, and then you'd wait long enough, and then you saw the, the Russian logo. You say, wow, that's not us. And it, it shadows you because it gets in front of the sun. And that, you know, that triggered a lot of movement. That's the war driver, by the way, uh, that got us to build the space station initially. Well, Neil, popular predictions that were made so many years ago haven't really panned out. I mean, Stanley Kubrick's 2001, right? In this movie, we're colonizing the moon and sending people to Jupiter, and then there was 2010, we were doing more of the same. Why have we lost our space groove? Do you really expect us to get it back? Back in the 60s, people said, we're going to land on the moon in 1969, so surely by no later than 1985, we'll be on Mars. So the delusion there is the expectation or the the interpretation that the act of going to the moon was a simple, natural thing to do for a country that likes to explore. It was not natural. It was very unnatural. The amount of money that was diverted to make that happen could have only happened in a military war climate, which is exactly the circumstances that drove it. Once we beat the Russians to the moon, and it was clear that they had no plans to go to the moon at that point, or no capacity to do so, the the steam... The nuclear fuel, whatever source of energy you want to credit, went out of the sail. The, the wind went away from the sails, and there was no longer the military driver to continue that trajectory. So the next steps of exploration are never a given, and that's why. That's why we haven't been back since. If you had the money, if you succeeded in convincing, I don't know, the public, the legislature, private industry, whomever you had to convince to put more money into exploring space— what would you do? What would be the project? Would you go back to the moon? Would you go to Mars? What would be first on your list? You know, I think most of us like Mars better than we like the moon because because of all the obvious Earth-like features on Mars. It's got polar ice caps and it's tipped 24 degrees and it's got just on, on its axis the way Earth is, which means it has seasons just like Earth. And, and it once had liquid running water coursing over its surface. It's a tantalizing target to look for life. Not life there today on its surface, but perhaps uh, fossilized life from the past or active life thriving in aquifers kept warm uh, by one means or another beneath the Martian surface. So I'd surely go back to the moon, onto Mars. I'd want to visit an asteroid that might be headed our way. I want to make sure we have power to deflect it. So space ought to be a, a place where we do what we've got to do, scientifically, geopolitically, from a security standpoint, and we haven't mentioned yet, tourism. That's the, the entrepreneurial spirit there is to try to get sort of suborbital flights and orbital flights because you know people are going to be paying for those trips. Neil Tyson, thank you so much for uh, joining us today. Back to beyond. You know, I want to be on more often. I love your show. Neil deGrasse Tyson is an astrophysicist at the American Museum of Natural History and the author most recently of Space Chronicles, Facing the Ultimate Frontier. If we are to go into space, of course, we'll need training. And this means learning to live in an extreme environment because, after all, space is extreme. And to that end, that's why I have this this box here, Seth. You see this box I that I brought in? I do see that box, yeah. You see that I'm thinking outside it? I, yes, I see that, yes. <laughs> But I'm actually going to climb inside of it, and the reason is I want to get an idea for the sort of isolation that astronauts need to go through so that they can prepare to go into space. And this is the best I could do. Yeah, is that box big enough? I think so. Can you help me get in? Yeah, I can. Well, it's almost as tall as you are. I think this is the box I used to order that dental floss last week. There's not much space in this box, but I think I can fit in. Yeah, you think so? Well, you, you really are going to extremes here in, in this sort of cardboard simulation of space. Well, you don't know how much, Seth, because I'm actually a little claustrophobic. And so being in this box right now, it does feel like the walls are closing in on me. But let's say this were a real test of a mission, preparing to go to Mars or into space somewhere. Uh, what else would I need? Well, you'd have to do everything for life support at, at, at a minimum. I mean, you, you need food, of course. You need water. You need, you know, waste disposal. You need some supply, regular supply of air. You need all of that, and you're going to need it for a while. It's actually, we do need air. It's actually getting very warm in here. Well, this is basically what NASA astronaut Shannon Walker did. She did something a little bit more sophisticated than climbing into a cardboard box, as I've done here. But what she did was 
live at the bottom of the ocean in the Aquarius underwater laboratory with five of her colleagues for six days. It was supposed to be 13 days, but it was cut off because of a hurricane. She was taking the plunge to test and possibly prepare for an exploratory mission to an asteroid. Can I come out of the box now? Well, I kind of like you in that. kind of nicely packaged there, Molly. Uh, or maybe you're expressing yourself. I don't know. Okay, you can come out. Okay. I think I need some help. Can we, can we de-box you here? <laughs> this laboratory is not far down as you might expect. It's about 60 feet underwater. But it's down far enough that when you're living there... You're in a saturated environment, which means you cannot just leave and come home quickly. Can you describe for me what it's like to be down there in this, in this laboratory? I mean, how big is this lab? Uh, the laboratory is, I would say, a medium size. It's definitely a lot smaller than the space station, but it's uh, bigger than, say, a car. It's a really neat place to be. You've got a little area where you've got bunk beds that uh, you can sleep in, and then a larger area where is the, the main working area, and then you've got what I would call the hatch area, which you can go outside into the ocean and do the work that you're doing outside. And, and what about food? Can you cook? There is a microwave down there, so there's not a lot of fancy cooking that goes on. We kind of eat the equivalent of camping food. This sounds like a kind of tough environment. I mean, did the crew get irritable? Do people are, are maybe even claustrophobic? Well, hopefully if you're claustrophobic, you're smart enough not to volunteer for a mission like that. But no, our crew got along very well. We didn't have any problems with career stability or anything like that, but uh, we're also professionals and knew what mission we had to accomplish, so that, that takes care of a lot of the problems right there. Now, you weren't down in this metal motel just for the fun of it, just to see if you could live underwater. I mean, you were simulating a space mission to an asteroid. And, you know, at first thought, the idea of simulating a space mission to an asteroid by going 60 feet underwater doesn't make any sense to me. So tell me why why this is considered an analog. Right. So um, we use analog missions to to simulate various aspects of space missions. And what we were actually doing is not so much the coming and going to an asteroid. We were actually looking at how can we efficiently accomplish science tasks once we get to an asteroid. Some of the, the issues that you have with an asteroid is once you get there, there is no appreciable gravity. So you're sort of floating near the asteroid, and yet you still have to do science. You still have to touch the asteroid to collect samples. So that's the kind of things we were looking at on our mission. Okay, so this was to simulate going to an asteroid. Now, an asteroid could be, you know, I don't know, a couple hundred feet across, a couple hundred miles across at best, but they're, they're small, so they don't have much gravity. You can't just sort of walk on the asteroid, so you're underwater to kind of simulate the zero-G, the, the no-gravity environment, right? Exactly, and I, sh- I should have explained that point. When you're underwater, you can balance yourself out to be what we call neutrally buoyant, so you don't float, you don't sink, so you are sort of hovering above uh, the ground and then trying to figure out the best ways to move about the surface of your asteroid and to collect science samples. I feel like my life is neutrally buoyant. <laughs> Okay, but part of this is indeed to be able to maneuver your way around the asteroid so you can chip off a a piece of it or whatever, and you're doing that in zero-G. Now, you can't swim, not at a real asteroid, you could here, but of course in space you can't swim, so... How, how do you actually maneuver your way around this thing? I mean, you know, magnetic boots, what? Exactly. We, we often talked about having these uh, mythical magnetic boots or, or things like that to, to fix on an asteroid. Well, we don't have those, but you do have things that you could postulate that you might have, and, and we were not specifically testing this technology, but you could assume that you have some sort of attachment mechanism that you could put in two different places and then string a rope or a wire between the two and then use that to translate from one place to another. Uh, you could also postulate that you might have, say, a jetpack to fly around the surface. So we actually had a little jetpack that let us fly around underwater, and that was a lot of fun. You could postulate that maybe you've got some sort of robotic boom that's attached on one end, and you can extend it out and move along the boom to go to another attachment point and then inchworm your boom around the surface. Can I ask, you know, you were down in the underwater laboratory coming out and then, you know, sort of propelling yourselves around this fake asteroid, I suppose, with just a big concrete rock? Uh, we're actually um, near a really nice coral reef. We're in a protected marine sanctuary, so we weren't actually allowed to manhandle the, rock, the coral reef at all. So we actually had, to, unfortunately, had to bring in rocks for us to, to play with so we didn't harm that protected area. Hold on and don't blast off. We'll hear more of Seth's conversation with Shannon Walker in a moment. We're getting a space lift on Big Picture Science. 
From the latest in artificial intelligence to new apps and business upgrades, the tech industry is always changing and growing. So keep up with a Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes released nearly every day, the Daily Crunch gives you a brief overview of the biggest tech headlines, and it's all delivered in around five minutes or less. So you can easily hear about the latest updates while trying some of those updates for yourself. Listen to The Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's The Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts. We return to Seth's conversation with astronaut Shannon Walker about training for a mission to an asteroid. Some people may wonder why we're practicing how to uh, conduct experiments on an asteroid because they, they might wonder, why, why go to an asteroid? It's just a small piece of rock. Why don't we go to someplace interesting like the surface of Mars? Why, why would we go to an asteroid? And that is a good question. And, and there are a lot of reasons. A lot of it has to do with basic science and understanding how our solar system was formed, understanding how the universe put itself together. And so to do that, going to an asteroid and collecting samples, you can look at the rocks there and and figure out some of this stuff on how the solar system was formed. Any idea when we might actually launch people to an asteroid? That is the $64,000 question. If Um, it were that cheap, probably it would be (laughs) be next week, I think. Wouldn't that be great if it were next week? No, I would say sometime in the 2020s, we'll be seriously looking at another destination to go to, asteroid, moon, Mars. That'll be the time frame where we actually have a rocket large enough to get the mass that we need to get into space to go somewhere else. All right. Well, asteroids have the key to the history of our solar system. That's something we want to know. But if you're talking to the 2020 time frame, then I have to ask, I mean, why why are we practicing now? I mean, this is like, you know, getting in shape for the, the big match, and the big match <laughs> right. is 20 years away or 10 exactly. years away. Well, you know, it takes a lot of time to develop technology and hardware. Before we would send people to an asteroid, we'd probably send a robotic mission to check whatever asteroid we want to go to out to then figure out, well, what kind of technology do we need to actually anchor somebody there? But once we get there, it really is important to have the best answer on how you want to do science. And so sometimes it does take this many years to figure out the answers. It sounds like Chris Columbus kind of training (laughs) training his crew in 1482 or something like that. Well, Shannon... uh, does this compare at all with the Mars 500 experiment where, you know, the uh, Russians put, I don't know, uh, six people in a small container for almost two years yeah. to simulate a trip to Mars? Um, they're really looking at different dimensions of an extended mission like that. The Russians were more geared towards the psychological side of things. I know they had some tasks to do, but it wasn't like their primary goal was was evaluating technology or evaluating techniques that you might need later on. And then ours was specifically looking at, well, if we're going to do this, what's the best way to do a mission such as going to an asteroid? Shannon Walker, thank you for talking to me. Thank you. Shannon Walker is a NASA astronaut. Okay, so we have the humans who are willing to go into space, but do we have the hardware to take them there? Now, of course, we can put people into orbit, you know, send them to the International Space Station, although the U.S. doesn't have that hardware right now, not since the shuttle program ended. But do we have the rocketry to put humans on the moon or Mars? Well, we used to have it back in the days of the Apollo missions, but we don't have it now. Why don't we have it anymore, Seth? Well, those rockets are not being built anymore. The expertise is pretty much gone, and there are none sitting on the shelf. So you're saying that if we had to put someone on the moon, we wouldn't know how to do it? We would have to redevelop technology that we had 40 years ago. Well, then, what about the near future? Could we develop that technology, create the kind of techno-wizardry to become a spacefaring people, to send astronaut Shannon Walker to an asteroid, or a team of astronauts to Mars, or to anywhere in the solar system? It's something that Nathan Strange at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory has pondered. He comes up with ideas for robotic space missions to explore the planets, but he's an aficionado of human space travel. And he has a number of ideas he'd love to see developed, and which he outlined in a recent Scientific American article. Okay, Nathan, I believe you're of the opinion that we understand the propulsion technology needed to explore the solar system, but isn't that mostly chemical rockets, rockets that, you know, burn the stuff in their fuel tanks and send it out the back of the rocket as a big flame? Are these really adequate for the kind of missions you're talking about? 
actually a lot of commercial spacecraft now, like the ones that give you your satellite TV, they actually use what are called uh, ion engines. Kind of like the way a, an old TV set worked, an old cathode ray tube TV set, except you just don't put the screen and the ion beam keeps going and it gives a gentle push to the spacecraft very efficiently. So they use those on commercial spacecraft, and then uh, the Dawn spacecraft is in orbit around the asteroid uh, Vesta right now, and it's using an ion engine, and it's going to be headed out to the dwarf planet Ceres. We have new stuff uh, beyond chemical rockets. Well, well, let's talk about that a little bit, because you're talking about ion rockets. Now, an ion, anybody who remembers their high school chemistry, an ion, you just take an atom, you strip some of the electrons off, it's an ion. So you're shooting these little tiny, tiny particles out the back, that doesn't sound like it would be enough to propel a rocket. What's the deal with ion engines? Why, why would we want them? So with a rocket, you get two things that you care about what's coming out the back. How much it comes out the back gives you how hard you're being pushed. And how fast it's going out is how efficient it is. So the faster it is, the less fuel you need to fly the same trajectory. So what ion engines do is they use an electric field to accelerate the particles out the back, and they kick it out really fast so you can get a lot more oomph for kilogram of fuel. But they don't push as hard as chemical rockets because chemical rockets are just a bottled explosion, and you need that hard push like when you're doing things like on a rocket to launch off the ground and a few other places. But lots of times in space, it's big open space. There's nothing around, and you can thrust for months, even years, and uh, get to where you're going. Going, and so you can be efficient. So, you know, slow and steady wins the race. So ion rockets, they have less thrust, but on the other hand, you can leave the on switch set for longer periods of time so they could build up. It sounds like that's the perfect rocket if you're going for long distances, if you're in cruise mode in space. But, you know, can an ion rocket actually get a crew that's headed for Mars or someplace off the Earth? Well, I can't get them off the surface of the Earth, so what you do is you use a regular rocket to launch into Earth orbit, and you rendezvous with a spaceship sitting there waiting for you. I mean, at least in the old Star Trek, they never landed the Enterprise, right? So it's okay to have your spaceship in space, and you just launch a little capsule on the chemical rocket. So these ion thrusters work by shooting these charged particles out the back, but something has to power those ions. Something has to accelerate them so they can shoot out the back. Uh, what is that? Is it is not chemical reactions, is it? No, you can use a, a solar power system. And solar power is very efficient in space because you have no atmosphere, uh, no weather, no rain clouds, and you can always point straight at the sun. And then also in future missions, they're thinking about developing nuclear reactors for when you're far away from the sun for power. But right now, with what we have, we would use solar power. Now, you envision, Nathan, not setting out for Mars directly, but first kind of testing these technologies by, for example, visiting an asteroid. You have an asteroid in mind? There's several possible asteroids. There's like a Pophis, which was one that was a concern that it might hit Earth at some point, but we've since found out it's not a danger. But it's still a very interesting target because it's so close to Earth. Uh, another one is this asteroid 2008 EV5. It's so new it doesn't really have a name, just a number. But it's a big asteroid, about 400 meters in diameter, and it's a carbonaceous chondrite asteroid, which is very interesting scientifically. It may have uh, trapped in it some clues to the formation of the early solar system. Okay, so it's about the size of the Rose Bowl, but uh, is it worth a visit? I mean, why go to this rock, this <laughs> rocket well, space? It's not the final destination. It's more like taking your uh, ship out in the harbor and going to some little island to try out things before you sail across the ocean. I mean, we've never really gone in deep space, and there's a lot of things we don't know about. You know, when you're in orbit and something happens, you just land. If you're out in deep space, you can't just land. You're still in deep space. You're far away from Earth. There's no help. And so we have to learn how to operate a spacecraft totally on its own, disconnect it from the rest of humanity. What about these human factors? What, what sort of problems are there with long-duration spaceflight? So the, the, main, the main concern for interplanetary missions is the radiation. So... There's, there's two things that happen. The sun occasionally has a solar storm and you get solar proton events, which could kill you, but at least you get some warning and you can get into some sort of uh, shelter. Uh, but then there's these galactic cosmic rays that are kind of going on all the time on a low level, and we have to find a way to protect the crew from that radiation. Couldn't you just build thicker walls on the spacecraft? So the, if you build the thick walls out of something really dense, what happens is the radiation hits it and you get this spray of secondary particles that's actually a little worse than what the original radiation was. So they have to make the uh, 
radiation out of stuff with uh, light elements like hydrogen, make the shielding out of that. So they would use like water is something they think about. But the problem with water is you need about two meters of it surrounding everything. And so your spacecraft then becomes, you know, several hundred metric tons. I mean, two meters, you mean that the walls would be two meters thick filled with water? Two meters thick all the way around. I mean, possibly even longer. <laughs> There's a lot of unknowns here. But, I mean, think about it. Okay, like in Apollo, everything was unknown. We had to invent everything. And so we've learned a lot in the 50 years we've been doing space travel. And we just have to figure out this last little new thing. And the only way you can figure it out really is by going outside the Earth orbit and start seeing what that environment's like. Nathan, you're clearly an advocate for human missions into the solar system. Is it because you want to go yourself? Why is it so exciting for you? Oh, I'm, I'm an advocate for solar system exploration. I want to see what's there. I want to know. I mean, Galileo thought Jupiter was a pinprick of light and saw these four other pinpricks of lights for the Galilean moons. I mean, gee, wouldn't he be envious of anybody with an internet connection today who can go and just go on Wikipedia and read about what those pinpricks of light he saw really were? To read about how they're all volcanoes on Io, how Europa has an ocean that may have life, and then go to Saturn, read about Titan with its exotic methane rain, and everybody can see these amazing things. It's like an age of exploration where we're all along for a ride together. Are there any technologies, uh, rocket technologies that you're aware of that could get us beyond the solar system? No, I don't. We, we could send robotic probes, but I don't think there's anything that can get the energy we need to send humans out there unless we learn new physics. Yeah, that, that's kind of discouraging. Everybody sort of envisions this Wh 23rd century scenario of Star Trek. Why is that discouraging? The solar system is freaking awesome. I mean, there's so many wondrous things out there. Why do we need Star Trek? In Star Trek, every planet looks like Southern California. There's neat stuff out there. There's We, we got Mars with Olympus Mons so big, it's at the top of it's outside the atmosphere. We have the giant canyons of Alice Marineris, you know, huge, wonderful vistas that makes the American Southwest jealous. And then we have, you know, the outer solar system, the rings of Saturn, the Jupiter system with, with all these worlds with the giant Jupiter just in your sky and, you know, oceans on other planets and just all these wonderful, wonderful places. So there's so many worlds right here. I think that's cool. We don't have to have a warp drive to have fun. Well, it sounds like there's plenty of scope for exploration over the course of the next century or two. Nathan Strange, thanks so much for talking with me. Thank you. Nathan Strange is a formulation system engineer at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory. He wants to see humans in space. Are you one of those humans? How much would you shell out to leave Earth? 55. Do I hear 55? Do I hear 60,000? 60 60K, 70, 70, good, 80, 85. Coming up, 80, 90, a woman who 90, plunked down 90, cash to reserve 90, her seat 90, on a rocket into space 20, 20, as private space companies elbow their way into the launch biz. We're getting a space lift on Big Picture Science. Let's face it, science is like a liftoff. I mean, it's a blast. First, there's the studying of life that walks, crawls, swims, and slithers on this planet, and also the plant species that move, well, not so much. Then you have the science of how stars are born, planets form, and technology evolves. And then, whether we can find any of this life and technology beyond our planet on another world somewhere out there. You can help this endeavor by becoming a Team SETI member. It's easy to do at SETI.org. And when you do become a Team SETI member, simply shoot an email to the radio show staff at BigPictureScience at SETI.org, and we'll send you a photo of the least spacey radio team you'll ever meet in a photograph. SETI.org and Big Picture Science at SETI.org because it feels out of this world to help scientists. There's no such thing as a free launch. And after all this talk, I'm exhausted. Patience is a virtue, unless you're in the private rocket business. Famously frustrated at what they consider the pokiness of NASA and the inability of government to get its act together to send humans into space, a fleet of space cowboys and interested entrepreneurs decided years ago they'd print their own tickets to space by designing their own rockets to take them there. Spaceship One, designed by Bert Rattan, became the first private vehicle to enter space. That was in 2004. At 100 kilometers up, 
Its citizen pilot officially became an astronaut. Okay, fast forward a few years and enter Spaceship Two. A bit roomier, but based on the same technology as its predecessor. The spaceship gets a lift off Earth on an airplane. In this case, it's the White Knight Two, and then it launches from its position at high altitude in the air. It goes for a suborbital spin and lands like most craft that you see at an airport. But it has a new owner, Richard Branson, Sir Richard, of Virgin Galactic, who promptly conceived a passenger carrying service. And tickets are on sale. You, after plunking down enough cash, yes, you can see the darkness of space, the curvature of the Earth, and even take a few G's, the high acceleration you feel when a rocket lifts off. With an estimated departure date in the fall of 2012, private space flight will no longer be the exclusive provenance of a handful of government-selected astronauts. One of the first space dreamers to nab a ticket is C.C. Culver, a former NASA lunar prospector mission controller and now a motivational speaker with the company International Stars. Okay, C.C., you bought a ticket to ride a Virgin Galactic spaceship into space, and I understand that you did so by walking into a space tourism ticket office? I had been actually passing this office for two years and didn't even know it was there. It's an office that says space tourism? It doesn't say space tourism, but when I looked it up, it said that they handled the tickets for Virgin Galactic. Is it one of those things where if you fly on a Tuesday, it's cheaper if you stay over (laughs) on a Saturday? Um, Well, the good news for me was that uh, you have a deposit that you put down, and uh, you don't have to pay full price like uh, you do an airline ticket right now right away. Now, can I ask what the going rate is for a ticket? To ride on a rocket ship? Yes, it's uh, $200,000. Now, in comparison to what commercial space and space in general has been, it's quite a different price. It seems like a hefty price, but if you look at two years ago, commercial space with the Russians, it cost 20 to $35 million to go. Okay, so, so you went in and you got a ticket. Mm-hmm. You have to bring with you some qualifications. Not anybody can do this, or maybe they can. Anybody can apply to do it. My question became after this is, would my body handle being able to do this? And so I actually went in to take some training this last year. So there are some physical requirements here that you have to be able to handle weightlessness and also the, the launch itself. Yes, it's the launch and the ascent as well as the descent. So comparing it to scuba diving, when you're scuba diving and you come up, you're blowing out air because there's more oxygen and air available. Um, In space, when you're descending is when you blow out because there's more oxygen and becoming available. When you're going up, you have to do the maneuver that the fighter pilots use, which is called the NIG straining maneuver. And you have to actually physically, they told us to say this word, hook, and you pull in and you squeeze all your muscles really tight because you want to pump blood up to your head. Because on the S and if you don't have the blood coming up to your brain, you can pass out. Okay, so there's some training. That Mm -hmm. sounds like that's important. Now, Mm -hmm. you actually get into the Spaceship Two rocket. How many people does this hold? Um, It holds uh, six astronauts and two pilots. Okay. Yeah, and I'm around the 100th flight right now. You are. Mm -hmm. Okay, so there will have been other... Yes. People going up. Yes, there's about uh, 450 people who are ready to do this. I wonder if you could give us an image of how it is that this rocket takes off Spaceship Two. Well, it's actually two aircraft put together with the Spaceship Two being carried by it. And the two aircraft together are called Eve in honor of Sir Richard Branson's mother. And it takes off like a regular airplane. So you're actually on a runway and you take off and you go up and you go up to about 50,000, above 50,000 feet, 55, 60,000 feet. And Spaceship Two is on the underbelly of the airplane. Yes. Okay. Hugging it the way a, a baby marsupial would, its mother. Yes. Okay. Yes. And it's kind of like an eagle when it has to push its baby out of the nest. When you get up to that altitude of 60,000 feet, it actually drops the spaceship, so you're free falling. And you're in that spaceship while it's dropping. Yes. Mm-hmm. For a very short period of time. And just enough time for Eve to clear so the baby rocket, if you want to say that, can actually then ignite its engine and blast into the atmosphere. Now, you don't actually go into orbit. You don't circle the globe the way that the International Space Station is doing. What do you do up there? You go up in a parabolic with the spaceship, and you get into weightlessness, and you're in weightlessness for about five minutes. And the closest thing on Earth that I've experienced to weightlessness is the salt sea or the dead sea in Israel where you float and you're basically not held down by anything. And 
can you do things when you're waitlist? Do you get to do somersaults and? Well, I hope so. I hope I get to do a backflip. That's something I always wanted to do. I was a gymnast in high school, and going backwards was always the hardest part for me. Okay, so your plan is to do a, a backflip, and then you spend some time in weightlessness, and then how does the rocket ship come back to Earth? Mm, it actually hits the top of the parabola, and comes back on the other side, just coming down, and then the wings on the spacecraft actually adjust once back in the atmosphere to a glider. So your spaceship becomes a glider plane and actually lands as a glider. Now, Cece, the big question is why? Why you want to do this? Why do you want to go into space? I've always had that passion, especially since I was young, to be able to go to new places. My dad took me flying for the first time when I was three months old. So I've been flying for a long time. And I really enjoy it. And I want to be able to experience what that's like to have just a bigger a bigger universe, a bigger understanding of the world in general. And also, medical technology is one of the things that we can have a lot of breakthroughs in, in space. And we can do that through taking up different payloads and experiments. If I have the opportunity to bring medical experiment, whether it's uh, stem cells or diabetes research, my dad was a diabetic, uh, type 1, and he went through some very painful things at the end of his life, which I really don't wish to see people go through. But you won't be bringing an experiment with you on this flight? Not that I'm aware of at this point. However, I am open to doing that. Would you say that you're a brave person? Do you see this as a, a brave venture? <laughs> I'm actually, um, when I was younger, I was like the shyest person there was. And my mom and dad actually got a report card saying they had to do something because I wasn't going to be able to talk with people or be around people unless they help me to break out of my shyness. And that is, we all have fear, and I have a lot of fears as well. But the concentration is not on the fear. The concentration is on what can be accomplished. Well, Cece, good luck to you. Thank have you. A, have a great flight, and thank you so much for talking with us. Thank you very much, Molly. I really appreciate it. C.C. Culver is a former NASA mission controller and is now a motivational speaker with International Stars. You can find out more about that and how to contact C.C. on our website. I think C.C.'s really brave for going into space. I wouldn't be able to do it because I would be too nervous. Seth, would you go? Would you go into space on one of these flights? I think I would. If the price continues to come down, I think it'll become more attractive to me. Yes, there's a little bit of danger, but, you know, keep in mind, by the time I would get in line to get on board, the thing would have been tested hundreds of times, and I'd have, a, I think, a, a safer feeling about the whole experience. So you actually would love to see Earth from space? Oh, absolutely. Listen, when I was a student in college, that was my dream job, to become an astronaut. Did you ever apply? I never applied. Yourself? To college, I mean? <laughs> I didn't do that either. <laughs> oh, well, I mean, obviously, CC is dreaming big. But, you know, why don't we expand our human spaceflight vision yet again? Now, we heard earlier in the show from a space enthusiast who is quite content to explore our solar system. Thank you very much. But that's not enough for Mark Millis, a physicist who's thinking big and long term. And he does so because he believes it's essential for humanity's long term survival. Mark spoke at a conference recently called the 100 YSS, the 100-Year Starship Conference. And his idea? Well, let's begin the long-term planning for a rocket that goes not to Mars, even Jupiter or Pluto, but to the stars. Mark, we've got some pretty fast rockets, but they would still take 100,000 years to get to the nearest star, which sounds to me like a very tedious trip. Uh, yeah. If we're talking about what we've already done, to bump that up, maybe another factor of 10 is conceivable, but still, okay, that's got down to 8,000 years uh, of a, a trip. And, um, of course, that also means you go 10 times faster. That needs 100 times more energy. So we're really pushing the limits there. Um, you know, it's technologically feasible to send something like a small probe to our nearest star, maybe even within a human lifetime, so you get the data back while you've still got a career. But the amount of energy and societal commitment to make that happen is still beyond the foreseeable horizons. Nonetheless, there was a conference recently. I think a 1,000 people attended. It was called the 100-Year Starship Conference. Yeah. The meaning of that 100 years was an organization that can last 100 years to accrue the technology and the funding to launch an interstellar mission. Where are we talking about as the destination of our interstellar voyages? 
Well, our closest neighboring star is uh, Alpha Centauri, and it's a little bit over 4.3 light years away. But anyway, early estimates that the closest habitable planet might be, maybe if we're lucky, 20 light years away, but more likely something on the order of 100 light years away. And if you even want to get more ambitious with your estimates and try and think, well, where could the nearest civilization be? The closest one might be 500 light years, but probably more than 2,000 light years away. All right. So if we were talking about visiting uh, the Klingons and they're a couple of thousand light years away, our rockets take 50 million years to get that distance. That's no good. It's obviously difficult to go to the stars. And the question is, why would we want to do that when we have the whole solar system yet to explore? Well, the ultimate value is to ensure the survivability of humans beyond the environment of Earth. But the other thing is because of what we'll learn in the attempt. We have to thoroughly understand what it takes for humans to survive and thrive in a closed loop, a very efficient system. That technology applied to Earth could also feed our poor and let us finally figure out, well, how many people can this planet support? It gives you a venue to explore those sort of questions in a less contentious way than they're usually solved, which is war. What you're saying is that we're more than destined to go to the stars. We're compelled to go to the stars for long-term survival of our species. Yes. Let's talk a little bit about, you know, how we might do it, because there's more to it than calling up Scotty in the engine room and saying warp seven. Now, chemical rockets are just out of the question. What about nuclear power? When you go from chemical to nuclear, you're already beginning to go orders of magnitude more in energy. And whether it's nuclear fission or fusion or antimatter, I I put antimatter in the same category because it is a nuclear process. The idea of an antimatter rocket, you get a lot of energy released from it. The catch is, is that that energy fairly quickly converts into things that you can't really get a handle on. In the very earliest microseconds or nanoseconds or or what, the byproducts are charged particles, which you can help harness and steer with magnetic nozzles. But after that, they break down into uncharged particles that just go wherever they want. You really can't capture that. Even though the energy for antimatter is a lot higher, how much of that energy you can actually take advantage of it starts to not look that good. All right, so it sounds like the kind of rockets that we generally talk about, chemicals, uh, solar sails, nuclear fusion, nuclear fission, matter, antimatter, and antimatter is just sort of the antithesis of ordinary matter. It's hard to make. We don't have a whole lot of it, but all these things, they're not great. They can't do what we really want to do, which is get to the some star system within a couple of months or a couple of years or something like that. Are there other exotic possibilities that were discussed, for example, at this conference? If you go past the accrued physics that we already know, then there are. And uh, the one that's most familiar is the warp drive. If you have enough energy and you arrange it just so, you can create a bubble of space-time that moves through space-time. That's the catch. The the light speed limit is how objects move through space-time. The speed limits for what space-time itself can do, yeah, it can move faster than light speed, space-time itself. Now, the energy levels that they need are beyond what could be engineered today. And depending upon whose theory or or variation on a theme you use, you either get such large energy requirements that basically you have to use the entire universe to make the trip, or ones that go way down to that, and maybe you only need something the size of Jupiter converted into all that energy to make something happen. And the showstoppers are that the energy that you need is likely to be negative, which is a difficult thing to explain quickly. But the other really perplexing thing is possible time travel paradoxes, where if you do a faster-than-light journey and come back, you might arrive before you left to stop yourself from taking the journey, and you see how the paradoxes go. Yeah, that, that doesn't sound like a good thing, but are you saying that warping space, which would be a great way to travel, you could get mm-hmm. there, you know, in 10 minutes like they always do on television, you're saying that this may not even be theoretically possible, let alone, you know, something that we can hand to the engineers? I can't say for certain. What I can say is there are theories in the peer-reviewed journals that suggest how 
you could make them possible. The fair debate where these things are open is whether or not these theories, are they just mathematical curiosities, or do they really lead to something that could be physically constructed if you could ever get to those energy levels? Finally, Mark, when you're standing on a subway platform waiting for the train and somebody says to you, what about warp drive? What do you tell them? We're smart enough to start asking the right questions, but it's still too soon whether or not we're going to know if or how such things come out. Mark Millis, thank you so much for speaking with me today. Thank you. Mark Millis is a former NASA expert on advanced propulsion technology and the founder of the Tau Zero Foundation. So, so it sounds like, you know, while we're trashing this planet, we're not good stewards of this planet Earth, so let's go find another planet to live on in another star system somewhere. Is that the motivation? Well, I don't think so much going to another star system. I mean, it is true that we're doing bad things to the environment here. But on the other hand, there's a, actually a more important problem, and that is we're running out of stuff. We cannot confine ourselves to this planet. We can't say, oh, let's not go anywhere else because we should be able to solve the problems here at home. There are fundamental problems that are going to limit what we can do here in the future if we don't spread out a little bit. So I think he's right about that. So our time on this planet and life on this planet is finite. Well, yeah, that's true. The sun is heating up and eventually that'll make the earth uninhabitable. But that's a long time in the future. That's tens, hundreds, even thousands of millions of years. I think Mark's talking about much more immediate concerns. Can we learn how to deal with one another? Can we deal with the finite resources that we're going to encounter in the next hundred years on this planet? Can we learn that by going into space? And I think that he's right to suggest that we can. Thanks to our production staff, there are a lot of stars on board. None of them are spacey. Gary Niederhoff, Barbara Vance, Jay Weiler, and Marissa Fessenden. Also support from Rena Shulsky-David and Sammy David and the NASA Astrobiology Institute. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute. And a big thanks also to our listeners. Your ears have been attuned to getting a spacelift. You can find more Big Picture Science on iTunes and through the link on our website. And while you're online, why not go to Facebook, become a fan of the program? You can leave your comments there as well. And if you're a podcast listener but prefer over-the-air radio because it's aesthetically more satisfying for you, check out the listing on our website of radio stations that carry the program. All right, Houston? It seems we have liftoff. Ten, nine... Ignition sequence starts. Six, five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes.